Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot. No. <laughs> Poland? Mm -hmm. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausage. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. Hi. This is Małgorzata Bonikowska, your host, and you're listening to episode 90 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. On Polcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. I treat them all as our Polcast family. And, as in all families, I care about how family members do what's up in their lives. So, as always, I'm happy to update you on the podcast community members' new achievements as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. This one is special, as it is both a reunion type of podcast episode. We reconnect with an artist whom we presented to you a while back and the Polish-Jewish topics, which are so dear to my heart. And at the same time, it is a continuation of Polcast tribute to Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has been going on for over half a year now. When I did the first of my Polcast episodes, Tributes to Ukraine, I said, it's hard to believe that merely two and a half weeks ago, we lived in a relatively normal world, in times that have been tough for over two pandemic years, but in peace. Two and a half weeks, that's what it was then. It seems to be ages ago. And at that time, nobody thought that this unbelievably brutal war, where unimaginable atrocities are perpetrated on a daily basis, would continue for so long, with no end in sight. Nothing in our world is the same anymore. The tragic consequences of this war are just impossible to list. Loss of life, horrifying injuries, people disappearing, children kidnapped mass graves, unimaginable suffering, cities and villages destroyed, millions of displaced, traumatized people, global economic, diplomatic and political turmoil, and the burning question, when and how will it end? The world is helping on a massive scale. Today, you will hear my conversation with Michael Rubenfeld, who our podcast listeners remember from episode 20 and the story A Life-Changing Trip to Poland. Michael Rubenfeld, for those of you who don't know him, is a performance maker, cultural producer, playwright and actor, originally from Winnipeg, a graduate of the National Theatre School of Canada. He's a Dora Award-nominated performer and playwright and has worked on stages across the country in the United States and Europe. He has created many theater festivals and numerous theater events. Michael is also a prolific actor who has performed on stages across Canada, America, and Europe. He has been called one of Toronto's most interesting men in the theater by the Globe and Mail's Paula Citroen. His powerful play, We Keep Coming Back, co-created by Michael Rubenfeld and Sarah Garten-Stanley, 
with Mary Berchard and Katka Reszka was shown in Canada, Poland, and in other countries. We Keep Coming Back is a real story of a Jewish mother and son who decide to visit their pre-Holocaust familial home in Poland. On their quest to discover their lost history, they find new friends, love, and unexpectedly vibrant cultural revival. When I saw the play when it premiered and then returned to Toronto, I would have never expected that Michael would move to Poland and settle there. Now he lives in Krakow with his wife and son. Michael has been artistic director at Festivalt, which is an independent arts collective that produces an annual program of critically minded Jewish art and activism in Krakow. Michael, his family and friends have been actively involved in helping Ukrainians. His latest unique project is hosting an online global art auction to showcase and to support Ukrainian artists whose careers have been halted by the war and to financially support charities that assist with war relief. They were able to source over 130 pieces of original artwork from roughly 40 artists across Ukraine, some renowned, famous Ukrainian artists. Those art pieces were brought to Poland, which is quite a story in itself. I reached Michael in Krakow. Well, Michael, I can't believe I'm seeing you and you're in Krakow. And I just want to go back to the time. This is... 2016, when I attended the first show of your We Keep Coming Back, and I remember your very mixed feelings about Poland, and now you moved to Poland. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've been here for about five years now. You know, before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of traveling for work back and forth between Canada and Poland, and I was spending a lot of time in the UK as well. I was doing a big project there every year. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've I've left Poland three times in about three years. So yeah, totally integrated. Right. So does that mean that when people say, "Do you where do you live?" you say in Poland? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I try to spend you know still enough time in Canada to remain a resident Uh uh, there, just kind of legally, because I still do some work there and. Well, you know, when I can, but uh, yeah, you know, I have a flat in Poland that I own and a child who's, you know, basically grown up during the pandemic. He was born, he's three and a half now, so. Is he bilingual? He's sort of, he's bilingual, yeah, he is. His Polish is stronger than his English, though. Uh, I think that's just because we're in Poland and he goes to school in Poland and and you know his you know my wife speaks him in polish and you know everyone speaks him in polish but me basically so why did you decide to stay well you know you know as an artist uh, you know particularly the kind of artist that i am uh, you know and what that means is that i have a tendency to step into the mouth of madness <laughs> in my work you know, I, I really I really appreciate conflicts in in my practice. And I tend to, you know, want to work with it. So as an artist, you know, Poland is an incredible place to be, <laughs> you know, in terms of 
the, the, the tensions that exist here, both for myself as a Jew with the history that exists here, trying to negotiate this contemporary Jewish space, which is difficult. Um, and also I feel that as a Jew who had the privilege of, of growing up in Canada, I have a very unique perspective that's different uh, than than most people in this country. And I feel like I've got something to contribute here for for Jews and, and non-Jews. So, you know, I'm never bored. I've always, there's always something to do. And I'm, I don't question my work and my practice here the way that I think I did a lot more in Canada. I think in Canada, it was more complicated to understand the essentiality of my voice, if that makes sense. Um, I think there's a lot of stories that need to be told uh, in Canada in a lot of different ways. And I felt like my role in Canada was more to be someone who helps others tell their story. Whereas the story that I'm telling here in Poland, the stories that I'm telling, I'm very much a part of. I feel like I'm a part of telling my story and understanding and working through my story as I'm as I'm telling it. So as an artist, it's it's been wonderful. Now there's a lot of complications to living in Poland, as you know. I'm not a fan of the government. Uh, and it's quite homophobic and homogenous. Um, and those are all things that I find very painful. But again, I think there's something useful to the fact that I grew up in a country where it was always legal to, to be married if you were gay. And that, you know, and children grow up with that as something that's quite normal. And so I think there's something useful to having me be in this space where queerness is not so politicized uh, in my life because people did that work many, many years ago in Canada to allow that kind of equality. And that's work that, that's still needing to be done here. And I think that, again, I have, I am able to contribute that. So from what I understand, there's this Jewish story and Jewish heritage and past that you carry with you. But there's mm-hmm. also this gay thing, which I didn't even realize was part of your work. I mean, it's not just queerness. I think it's just like equality, equality. in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the festival that I run with my wife, we put a strong focus on feminist work as well. Um, queer work. We had a trans uh, artist in residence this year as well. I think that we will also attempt to want to create space within the work that we do for people who this country doesn't necessarily like to create space for. Now, going back to the Jewish part of it, um, how far are you from that moment when you wrote we keep coming back mentally, emotionally, artistically. Well, you know, we keep coming back was very much about me coming to the point where I was renegotiating my relationship to this country based on the stories I had been told. So it was very, very much a beginning. And I don't feel like I'm renegotiating my relationship to this country any longer. I feel like I'm in a far more generative space. I feel like I am a part. I'm a Polish citizen legally now. Uh, I speak a lot of Polish. 
so I can engage more and more with language. And I'm not really thinking about whether or not Poland is an important contemporary space for the Jewish people, which I think was very much the journey of we keep coming back. I now run a gallery in the former Krakow ghetto, and I have produced five uh, festivals. I have a play on in Poznan at the Teatrinova that you know will be running for several years, and I'm making theater professionally about Jewish subject. So I feel now that my role is very much about contributing to how Jewishness now operates as a as a contemporary culture, how it's understood as a contemporary culture, and how being a Jew integrating or or you know continuing to integrate into like non-Jewish society can contribute to contemporary Polish Jewish relationship. So do you have the feeling that everything that we talk about in Canada when we think Jews, Poles, Jewish history, Polish history, Poland, that it's a bit archaic? That's not what it's all about. There's so much more that people are blind to, they don't realize. From what you're saying, there seems to be so much going on. Oh, that's a really good question. I guess I would ask you to be like define what you mean by that. What I mean is that we constantly talk about the past here. When we say Polish-Jewish relations, Poland, uh, we always think the war after the war. We don't talk in Canada about stuff going on now, really. Yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, I think it's really... The past is always is almost always a part of everything <laughs> here. It can't. It's very difficult for it to, to not be. And you know, in a way, I think that's exactly right because I feel that in a way, the past is always with us in everything that we do. I think that in Canada, we just are much kind of interestingly enough, we're we're, we're often very cut off from our pasts in Canada, it, except you know, in like a Jewish context, we talk about the war. We talk about like how bad things were for the Jews. Uh, so we don't talk about, you know, the positives. But, you know, I don't think that in Poland it's really possible to negotiate the Jewish contemporary without also negotiating history. But I think, you know, for for me, what's always important or what's always essential in my work is that my work is always about the present and the future. And it's about thinking about the present and the future and how being in relationship to the past, how, you know, how and why we negotiate the past and how it's informing the present and the future in Poland. Whereas I do think that there tends to be a conversation about, oh, just how bad Poland is or how bad things were. And there, there's this kind of like regurgitation of trauma that I find the Jews love to do about Poland. And while I think that it's important to continue to speak about the past and to remember the past, for me, what I like about being here, and one of the you know one of the things that feels quite healthy for me is that it's not about the past for the sake of the past. It's not about it's not a mea culpa. It's about okay, we talk about the past because we want a future that feels healthy, that feels collaborative, that feels generative, with really positive relations between Jews and non-Jews, good situation for Jews in Poland, 
good relationships. And also, you know, we spend a lot of time help trying to help non-Jewish people understand what Jews are in Poland, because I think that in fact, in Poland, people are very, very interested and curious about Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish people, but there's not a lot of Jews here. And, you know, there's not a ton of, you know, Jewish culture for people to engage in. You know, there's a, there's a Jewish culture festival, uh, which tends to be mostly Jews from away coming to Poland to present Jewish culture here in really great ways. And then there's some other festivals and stuff. Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe? Do you feel welcome? Do you feel comfortable? Oh, well, safe, welcome, and comfortable are three different <laughs> I know. <laughs> They're three different things. So to answer your first question, do I feel safe? Yes, I absolutely feel safe. I, I don't worry about being in danger whatsoever. When people ask me that, I would say it's more dangerous to be Jewish in America. No one's breaking into synagogue and synagogues and murdering people here. And I never worry about that happening. So yes, it's very safe here for Jewish people. Do I feel welcome? I think that it really depends on the context and like who's running the show, you know, in certain institutions. So there are certain institutions who, you know, are definitely very like inclusive. And then I feel like there's a genuine interest in having Jews be a part of things. And then there's some situations where I don't feel welcome, uh, even if people are pretending to be welcoming. Do I feel comfortable? I would say that I feel more comfortable economically in Poland because it's it's easier to live. I can own property here, which is something I could never do in Toronto where I was living. And I don't worry about money the way I worry about money in Canada, which is nice. I would not say I feel comfortable, but I don't think that is the goal. I think the discomfort that I feel is also important to my way of being here. I don't want to feel comfortable. If I wanted to feel comfortable, I could go back to Canada and I would feel that com comfortable. But I don't think that comfort was very helpful for my my practice as an artist. <laughs> Because you like conflict. I like conflict, but I also like, you know, I feel like I like tension. I think that that art is really valuable tool for negotiating why there is tension in things. It's a great way to invite people into a space to work through complicated things. So I, that's why I like it here. I really feel like there's a lot. And it's not just conflict for the sake of conflict. You know, what I, I, I would like this place to be easier. And I think I can help do that. You said past was always part of everything and that past is so important. But then what's going on in Poland with the Ukrainians shows that it's possible to put past behind when the need comes because Poland and Ukraine, as you know, have had pretty difficult past. But still, what's happening in Poland, in my opinion, is quite amazing, right? You're part of it because you not only are doing this auction that we're going to talk about in a minute, but from what I understand, you had Ukrainians at home. You were involved, incredibly involved in helping people. So how do you see Poland vis-a-vis -vis that situation? Millions of Ukrainians have come to Poland. Some have left, some have stayed. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there was a moment where one of the things that we're doing is we've established this um, ambassador program between artists in Ukraine and other and artists around the world. 
and we're introducing artists to each other and over Zoom. So we just had a meeting between an actor who I know who's you know doing quite well and a young artist in Kiev. And so it's sort of like better known actors or other artists who are helping to spotlight the work of lesser known oh. Ukrainian artists. I'm just going to end this meeting. Okay. All right. That's done. You know, since invasion began in 2014, the initial invasion began, there's been such a, a, a huge influx of Ukrainians living in Poland. I think up to like a million Ukrainians were already living in Poland before the newest invasion. You know, the complicated history between Ukrainians and, and Poles, to me, does not feel like was something that needed to necessarily be overcome at this sort of contemporary moment. I could be wrong if you were to ask somebody else. But what I would actually say is that it felt more like there was a kinship with Ukrainian people because of their proximity to each other. I think a lot of people felt like Ukraine and Poland were very, very important countries to each other and very important people to each other. And so when the war began, it just seemed like this entire country united together. It didn't matter what your politics were. Everyone just seemed to collectively agree that Ukrainian people needed help. Refugees, people escaping needed help, as much help as they possibly could. You know, what I would actually say is that I was incredibly proud of, of Poland and Polish people. I, I just, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was amazing. And it made me feel much closer to this country. And I think that a lot of people felt this way because, you know, this place is politically incredibly divided, as you know. It's quite extreme, that division. And there's a government that's doing everything it can to continue to divide people. So to see people completely autonomous from the government make the decision that we, they needed to help was pretty beautiful. There was a period of time where there were as many Ukrainians in Poland as there were Jews before the war, 3.5 million. So it was a really interesting moment. And it was a really interesting moment for us as a Jewish organization. We have our organization uh, located in the former Krakow ghetto. And we're there you know, on purpose because we want to be in relationship to our history. We want to be like living Jews in relationship to the genocidal history of our people. And so the fact that there is arguably a genocide, an attempted genocide right next door, was very interesting for us as Jews to, to think about what our responsibility was as a Jewish organization. So in that sense, the past was very present, even in this moment. It's like, okay, you know, here we are. What must we do? And that really helped us answer a number of questions as an organization in terms of what we needed to do, which was basically that we had to do as much as we possibly could. Tell me what you have done and what are you doing? We know about the auction, but just in a few words, you managed to get these artists, like this is 130 pieces of art from Ukraine and then getting them to Poland. That is a massive effort. Yes. Well, gosh, you know, the journey... There's many different pieces to the story. But basically, the story began with getting a, a message on the first day of the war from a friend of mine in Canada saying, I've got a friend leaving Ukraine. They need a place to stay. She's with her mother and cat. Can you think of anywhere? And I said, yes, with, with us. And so three days later, they showed up at our house. And I discovered that the woman, Alina Vyatkina is her name. 
Her plan was to come here and to start collecting supplies to then send back into Ukraine to help people fight. And so very early on, we started supporting her and helping her do this, first allowing her to use our flat as a place to collect supplies and to store supplies before it was packed up and sent back into Ukraine. And then we worked to help her raise over $100,000. It was myself and two other Canadians. And then from there, we started to do more through festival. So then that was that was sort of the first leg of the things we did. And then we started to uh, think about how we could start supporting Ukrainian artists and give voice to Ukrainian artists and to Ukrainian culture at, at this moment in time. And so we've produced five different exhibitions of Ukrainian art uh, around Krakow, including one partnership with the Manga Museum. And, you know, while doing this, what we, you know, we, we really understood from artists was that many of them were feeling helpless, which is part of why we wanted to help in the first place. But people, you know, wanted to contribute to help their country fight to help people fight. And they didn't necessarily want to do that with their hands. And this is where the idea for the auction arose because we wanted to help artists have agency and feel like they could be fighting somehow. And so we're helping them fight with their art through the, the formation of this auction. So, you know, what that means is that the artists are able to contribute to something that is raising money that's going to help charities, to help people fight, to help people fighting in, in, in Ukraine. The journey was quite intense. Basically, we started working with many different people, started to make build relationships with different artists. Some of them we've already had relationships to. Some of them we were building new relationships to. Just contacting artists and inviting them to be a part of what we were doing. Uh, many of them all different parts in all different parts of Ukraine. Uh, when most of the artists heard what we were doing, most of them said yes. They were very excited to be a part of what we're doing. But we then had to figure out the logistics of getting the art out of Ukraine and Taraka. And, you know, I wish that I could say that we did it this way or this way or this way. But the reality was is that each case was completely different. So there were two or three artists in the Carpathian Mountains who wanted to contribute work. One was a very large canvas. And we had we worked with volunteers in Ukraine, including Alina, who we helped raise money for at the beginning of the war. She's now helping us uh, by helping collect and transport art. In some cases, it was just literally Alina driving around Ukraine, you know, and picking up the art and then bringing it back to Lviv, where she had a warehouse, a little warehouse where most of the time her you know, supplies for army were being stored, plus our art. <laughs> uh, in another case, we had another, another friend of mine named uh, Vova, who uh, actually moved back to Ukraine in October from Canada because he believed that this war was coming and he wanted to start getting organized and he started building a volunteer network and he, and he rented a really big flat in the middle of Lviv. And he also became a volunteer coordinator for us. And he also was, you know, driving around, picking up art for us, helping us figure out how to get art from different places. We had one situation where we were working with an artist named Dima Fatum. Uh, and he's a very well-known street artist. And he was making these very um, fascinating prints of his 
the street art. Often it was like uh, things that he was doing on the street, responding to war that would not last very long. And so he would turn them into prints. And we had expected two prints from him. And he was in Kharkiv at the time. And we hadn't heard from him. And finally, he popped up to apologize. He had been shot. And <laughs> he couldn't get the pictures to us, and you know, as, as it was promised. But that everything was okay, and he'd managed to, to get the prince to a drop-off point where, you know, was then like, you know, then like, he was in Kharkiv. He took them to somebody who then took them to somebody in Lviv who then drove them to us in Krakow. So just completely bonkers. So now you have 130 pieces already online, from what I could see. And the auction is online, an online auction. So people have until the 4th of September. We're actually extending it. Very good. Um, yeah. No, we're actually extending it another month. Yeah, we need more time. Yeah, we have 130, 140 pieces. We managed to get them all here. And yeah, we're working with an auction, local auction house here, a woman named Ruzha Vonishevska. She runs an auction house here, and she's working with us to help us do it you know, professionally and treat the art properly and make sure it's being stored properly. Yeah, once somebody bids on one of the pieces someone wins one of the pieces we will send it to them wherever they are in the world are you still opening it to more people who are not as buyers but as donors of their art no not for not for this auction but but you know the hope is is that this goes you know if this goes well enough you know it's possible that we'll do more there have been many many artists getting in touch with us asking to be involved and uh, but no, for, for, for now, the auction is very big. It's a lot of pieces. How is it going? And it's going well. Uh, you know, we were all over the news in Canada yesterday, which was really great. We had a lot of people coming to the website. I'm hoping that people will start bidding. I mean, the thing about this collection is that it's not just that we got any art. We put together and we approached the best artists in Ukraine. Uh, you know, and it's it's one of the most you know incredible collections of Ukrainian art collected d- during the war from some of Ukraine's greatest artists. There are two or three that are considered masters. One named Andrei Bludov is considered one of the masters, and he's given us seven pieces to auction. Uh, Olga, Olga Petrova is another matriarch. She's in her mid-80s, and she's given us three pieces. Uh, another Olga Morozova, also another master artist who's been doing this her whole life, and she's given us five pieces. So there are there's some very, very serious art in this auction that I want to buy, because not only is the money that I'm spending going towards such an essential cause. The work is fantastic. I would just like to own it. And also being like having the opportunity to own a piece like this that that's you know marking this moment in history. And also the work is gonna go up in value. You know, if 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 you just want to think about like common economic sense and people that can get the work at actually a good good price, <laughs> believe it or not. And how the heck who else is gonna do be insane enough? like us to actually like to go to Ukraine and get the art and then <laughs> offer it to people in Canada. Like there's nothing else like this. So it's just such an incredible opportunity uh, for people to, to get involved. I hope that people see, see that and, and, and start bidding.
Well, thank you so much for organizing it, Michael, and for doing what you're doing. You're bringing a piece of everything to Poland, of Canada, of Jewishness, everything. Thank you. Thanks a lot. To learn more about the auction and about Michael Rubenfeld, please visit Polcast website at mypolcast.com. Polcast is not a news podcast. If you're interested in what's written about Poland in English, online articles published in many countries by many media outlets, we post them daily on our Polcast Facebook. There are some there is there's some politics of course, but not only. There's culture, history, arts and much much more. Many of those stories are quite amazing, so please visit Polcast Facebook and read them. Here are some recent examples. Did you know, for example, about an amateur gardener, Sebastian Suski, who is the proud new owner of the world's longest cucumber? 113.4 centimeters, over 100 centimeters, over a meter, beating the previous record by 6.4 centimeters. Well, Guinness Book of Records. Sebastian has been growing brick fruit and veggies with the help of his wife Renata for seven years. And we learned that there are so many interesting organizations in the world that refer to those huge, amazing fruits and veggies. For example, Sebastian volunteers for the European Giant Vegetable Growers Association, EGVGA a support group for fans of garden giants. And he's also an international officer for the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth, GPC. On a more serious, though equally interesting note, the media all over the world have been recently talking about this discovery. Archaeologists discovered a 17th century female Polish vampire with a sickle across her neck and a padlock on her big toe to prevent a return from the dead. This is how she was buried. The sickle was not laid flat, but placed on the neck in such a way that if the deceased had tried to get up, the head would have been cut off or injured. In the 11th century, we learn, citizens of Eastern Europe reported fears of vampires and began treating their dead with anti-vampire rituals, according to Smithsonian Magazine, believing that some people who died would claw their way out of the grave as blood-sucking monsters that terrorized the living. By the 17th century, it's reported that such burial practices became common across Poland in response to a reported outbreak of vampires. You can learn about other interesting burial practices to protect against the return of the dead. You can also read a lot of interesting other stories, for example, about Polish writer and Holocaust survivor Zofia Posmysz, who recently passed away at the age of 98. And all that you can find at our daily updated podcast Facebook page.
Trust and I would appreciate your financial support, hence the crowdfunding campaign. Thank you very much to those who are already helping Podcast. Like all other podcasts, this one counts and depends on its listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. Would you take me out for a coffee or donut once a month or lunch maybe? If you would, but cannot because we're too far away, please support Polcast instead with the equivalent of that. Any amount is highly appreciated. You can go to mypolcast.com/support and make a pledge. All that information is available on Polcast website mypolcast.com. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on the podcast, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. Slava Ukraini. We love you, our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, and remember, you can always count on us. You can bid in that wonderful global online art auction that Michael Rubenfeld was talking about. All the information about that, how to do it, you can find on mypodcast.com, episode 90. <laughs> Soon after I recorded this episode, Queen Elizabeth II died. And here in Canada, we also observed the morning until the day of her funeral on Monday, September 19th, when millions of people all over the world said the final goodbye. Queen Elizabeth II was our Canadian head of state and Queen of Canada. All of us who received Canadian citizenship took the oath of allegiance to the Queen. I swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors. Now, all new Canadians' oaths will be an oath of allegiance to the King. Canada was Elizabeth II's second home, her favorite country outside her own. She visited Canada 22 times, more than any other country. She's everywhere on our money, stamps, documents, passports, as well as in numerous names of places and institutions. It was sad to part with Queen Elizabeth II and know that she's gone forever. Rest in peace, Your Majesty, our Queen. I leave you with God Save the Queen. It will no longer be sung with these lyrics. (laughs) 